Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I chat about the US banking crisis with Addison Wigan. He's a New York Times bestselling author and market economist and commentator with three decades of experience. Addison has his own podcast, The Wigan Sessions, on which he talks to key thinkers and industry experts for a deep dive into history, politics, and economics. He's the author of the best-selling The Demise of the Dollar and one of the writers of the 2008 documentary, IO USA. Thanks to Addison for providing Economics Explored listeners with a free copy of his recent report, Anatomy of a Bust, Winners and Losers in the Banking Crisis of 2023. I've included a link in the show notes so you can download it, as well as sign up for Addison's content if you'd like to read and hear more from him. Personally, I think Addison's someone worth following if you're interested in the US economy and financial markets. And if you're listening to this show, you probably are. Okay, let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Addison Wigan on the US banking crisis. Addison Wigan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, no worries. I'm happy to actually meet you. As I was saying before, I've been forwarded some of your material in the past. uh, So I know your name and, and I feel like it's a good opportunity for us to banter a bit about economics. Absolutely. And thanks, Addison. And I've, uh, yeah, I've been uh, devouring uh, your research and uh, you've, uh, you've been doing a lot of deep analysis of what's been happening in banking and what's been happening in financial markets. And uh, yeah, very keen to chat with you about that. In particular, I've come across a recent presentation. You've given anatomy of a bust, banks go first. And in that presentation, you make the argument that, uh, well, we're in a panic, the panic of 2023. America's financial system is in danger of collapse. We're here to protect ourselves. Would you be able to take us through what leads you to this conclusion, Addison, please? And and also, perhaps maybe to begin with, a bit about your background. How did you I mean, you've had, a, as I mentioned, you've had deep experience of this. It, it sounds like you've been looking at these issues for decades. Can, can you tell us a bit about your story and, and how you come to this conclusion, this threat of collapse, please? Yeah, absolutely. I've been studying booms and busts for a long time, uh, since the mid-90s. This is literally the only work I've done in my adult life. Um, and just to do a shameless plug right at the beginning, I just published a book called The Demise of the Dollar which looks at booms and busts as they pertain to uh, fiat currencies in the world. And the U.S. dollar is deeply connected to the Aussie dollar. And uh, I address some of that. And also, the dollar is a reserve currency of the world. So like even the Aussie banks or New Zealand or Japan or uh, European banks use and China as well, which is a big part of the story. Uh, use the dollar to store their wealth in. 
So there's there's a symbiotic international connection between my currency and yours. And that's what uh, that's what I've been interested in for this particular book. But I've also been studying uh, booms and busts going all the way back to the famous ones like the tulip bubble and the Mississippi scheme from John Law back in the early 1700s. And then the South Sea bubble, which the bankers from uh, <laughs> from London just ripped off John Law's idea. And then they went bust too. So booms and busts are pretty common in the financial cycle of uh, of our lives. And we're, we have just gone through one. And that's what anatomy of, of a bust uh, it's just a special report we put out because it was uh, interesting to have our very own boom and bust happen right in front of our faces. It starts really in 2018, where a lot of people were using low interest rates um, that the Fed was uh, Fed had kept interest rates low to recover from the 2008 bust for such a long period of time that there's a like a whole group of traders who grew up in a world where interest rates were at zero or less than that. And so money was free, and they were speculating on all kinds of things. And one of the things they speculated on was cryptocurrencies. In 2018, we had this massive bubble in in cryptocurrencies. And a mm. lot of the banks that started failing in March of 2000. 23, which we're still, uh, I maintain, we're still in that crunch. Um, and I'll explain why I think we're still in it and why we don't talk about it that much anymore. But um, a lot of the banks, like Silicon Valley Bank, grabbed the headlines when they went bust in 48 hours because they had invested all of the money they were getting from tech entrepreneurs. They had invested it in uh, treasuries. And then the Fed started trying to battle interest rates and they didn't account. They didn't either believe the Fed or they didn't have any risk. There actually was no risk officer on the payroll at Silicon Valley Bank at the time. And they didn't realize what the impact of an aggressive rate, uh, rate hike policy by the Fed was going to be. And that was happening simultaneously with. Uh, the collapse of FTX, which is the crypto uh, currency trading firm that a lot of tech startups had their money had their money. So when they when FTX went bust, they had to pull their money out as fast as they could, or they just lost their money. And in the meantime, the startups were being also financed by uh, Silicon Valley Bank, notably, and uh, they needed their money back to keep their their startups going. So. A conflux of different trends follow the theme of booms and busts that we've seen throughout history. So when when it was happening, I was like, "Oh my god, this is our very own! Like we could write about this." <laughs> it's, it's it's actually happening right in front of us. So um, it's that's what the the special report is about is like how that actually happened. And when Silicon Valley Bank collapse it collapsed in 48 hours because all these people wanted to take their money out to cover their own losses in crypto that was technically what was happening and they were just yanking their money out and uh even though as you know as credible bankers we would look at the way that silicon valley had put their assets more than uh 50 of their assets were in treasuries which are meant to be 
you know, the risk-free asset that banks should hold anyway. Um, but they didn't calculate for the um, rising interest rates from the Fed uh, to combat inflation. And then when there was a run on the bank, that's what we call it. It wasn't, I mean, it's uh, a modern day <laughs> extraction of digits, really. But um, when people started taking their money out, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell their treasuries at a loss. and it it happened very quickly. No one thought that with the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that was set up by the Treasury to like help small banks stay solvent, help depositors stay solvent. Nobody thought that can actually happen anymore. The FDIC was set up in the 30s to combat some of the forces that were going on in uh, Great Depression. And then the Treasury itself gets together. They get all the Wall Street banks together, and they and they construct these bailout plans, like what they did for uh, First Republic. So those, all of those things happen, and they were grabbing the headlines uh, from March until like the beginning of May. Uh, but then our debt, what we call the debt ceiling debate, I prefer to call it the debt default debate, <laughs> mm-hmm. over the headlines yeah. and and. Nobody's really paying attention to the banks anymore, but the the underlying issues of the Fed fighting inflation and overcapitalization in treasuries, there's 36 banks in the U.S. that are still under FDIC protection, watch, conservatorship, whatever you call it. And then there's a bunch of other banks that are borderline. If what happened in March where people started pulling their money out of banks as a sector in, on Wall Street, then those banks are going to be in trouble too. There's a couple others that I've been keeping an eye on that that have me worried. PacWest was one of them. And they're just banks that are lending to more risky clients and then depending on the depending on treasuries to to roll out their or to keep their um their investments safe. And Depending on how long the uh, the Fed keeps raising rates, which I think they're going to raise them again, because inflation is not under control. It's not under under control here in the U.S. It's not under control in Australia. I think Australia was getting really aggressive recently, weren't they? Well, they increased rates more than people expected. There was a surprise uh, rate hike, and now the the question is whether they will. Uh, increase again. We've got a Reserve Bank meeting next week. Uh, this it's a bit unclear. There's a lot of debate about what the bank will do. Everyone expects that they're going to have to increase at least one more time by the end of the year, possibly two. It, it all depends on what's happening with inflation. We've got a monthly indicator that, in on through the year terms, has uh, has increased or it's worsened. But there's a debate about well, what you know, it's it's very noisy month to month, so it's difficult to read much. Much into that, we need to see what happens with the quarterly figure. They've been watching services inflation, so goods inflation has been coming down, but services inflation is uh, has been rising. So that's and now we've got a minimum wage hike of uh, oh, you know, six to eight percent or something, depending on the actual uh, whether you're right on the minimum or if you're on an award. So yeah, there are there, there are concerns about the future of inflation. I'd like to ask you a question. I mm. spent some time in Australia and also we had an office there for a while. So we were trying to manage our own finances there. And, and it might just be a myopic point of view. 
of my own because I am an American and the Federal Reserve is what it is. But when the Fed makes moves, often the Aussie Bank or like Japan or EU will follow like a month later. If, do you do you think that that's true? I don't want to sound like an arrogant American, which I probably am, but but it always feels yeah. like the the Fed is sort of like the central bank to the world. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's not automatic. It doesn't always happen. But certainly one of the things that our central bank is conscious of is what's happening with the exchange rate. And if uh, if we keep our interest rates too low, then that leads to a depreciation of the, the Australian dollar and you know that that's bad for inflation so we start importing inflation so that's something that they are conscious of and when the fed started uh lifting was it like last march or march yeah, last year, year or they yeah a little over a year ago yeah yeah and so the first few uh rate moves increases by our central bank were pretty much in line with what the fed was doing uh, and i mean my take on it and, and Michael Knox, who's a commentator here, and he's a, he's a Morgan's financial chief economist. I think he's one of the best market economists in Australia. That that was his view on it. That yeah, they were but essentially copying the Fed. That they had the Fed was moving, so our our guys had to. I mean, we re- our our central bank really. Uh, I don't know if asleep at the wheels the right way to uh, phrase it, but our first rate increase didn't happen until I think it was May last year. And so it was a couple of months after the Fed, the Bank of England had gone earlier, I think. Reserve Bank in New Zealand really got onto it early. But yeah, I think our central bank just wasn't concerned enough about the risk of inflation. They were too much in that secular stagnation paradigm that they had prior to the pandemic in those that decade or so, they thought, oh, well, we're in this world of uh, permanently lower interest rates and there's no no concern about inflation. We don't have to worry about that anymore for various reasons. I mean, that's literally what caught some of these regional banks uh, asleep at the wheel was the Fed got really aggressive quick, quickly. And even in the books that I've been writing, so I have this one, but I'm also looking at um, another one that's kind of like the uh, political analysis of how we got to a position where we have $31 trillion in debt, which is just ridiculous, right? Mm. Looking at the trajectory of Fed policy from really from 1987, when, uh, when there was a stock market crash and Alan Greenspan had just become our Fed chair, he dropped rates as a response so that people could get free money and, uh, and uh, prop up their balance sheets. That has been the response uh, since 1987 until now. And uh, no one, I, like, they caught a lot of banks sleeping when they started raising rates as aggressively as they did. And they were afraid of a 1980-81 scenario where inflation would just get out of control. There's no anchor to the dollar and everything is based on the, the dollar index, which is a basket of currencies, in, including the Aussie dollar, that determines what the value is. Um, there was a ton. It's just astounding to me, actually, with all the history that we have with banking and, and even the Federal Reserve since 1913. Like, there could be bankers who still have jobs <laughs> that didn't recognize oh, right. what was going to happen. <laughs> uh 
Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an they they play an important role in the economy, but yes, there there's a lot of monetary mischief or there are a lot of mistakes that are, are made for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I li- I like to ask Addison about. Uh, you mentioned that this started in was it 2018? So you think this started before the pandemic? Is that right? And then the pandemic. All the policies during the pandemic made it worse or contributed to the instability? Yeah, what I would say, though, is that there were separate events. I think that the policies really started in about 2012 when we were in QE2, meaning that the Fed was still buying bonds in the market or in even actually buying up mortgage-backed securities in response to um, what the federal, uh, what the, uh, what caused the, the crash in 2008, which was a global event also because all the big pension funds and the hedge funds they're all interconnected globally so when when we ran into our housing crisis in 2008 uh it affected everyone and we we saw the ripple effect really quickly and what the fed did to head that off was they dropped interest rates we had zero to negative interest rate real interest rates for a number of years between 2012 and, and 2018, but they were also buying up assets in the market. They were buying up bonds in the treasury market to support uh, bonds because they needed to fund the government. And then they were also buying, they were actually buying assets on Wall Street, which is like, that's an extreme measure. The bank is not supposed to be buying assets to pop up the market, but they were mm-hmm. doing it anyway. So there was a period of time where we had zero, I mean, money was free. And there was the, um, I like, uh, I like the phrase, the, the uncertain, uh, lender of last resort. That's what they call the Federal Reserve. You never know what they're going to do, but in the end, they'll come in and bail out, you know, they, if they had to, they'd bail out JP Morgan, which has literally the fifth largest GDP of any economy in the world. And it's a private bank. <laughs> so. They would come in and build them up. I was just thinking that on that point about how this, uh, what was it, the unexpected uh, lender of last resort? Or yeah, how, did yeah, you, yeah. how did you explain? Uh, Charles, um, Charles uh, it's in my book. I forgot his last name, but he wrote. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. He wrote an, an entire book about um, there needs to be a lender of last resort, but it has to be uncertain. You can't count on them. You just have to know that they're there in case the shit hits the fan. And yeah, and that's what the Fed has been trying to do. But what they've been telegraphing, what they telegraphed from 2012 until 2018 was we're going to keep rates low and we're going to keep buying assets to keep the market propped up. And the, the beneficiaries of that policy are Wall Street banks, big ones. You know, yeah. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, those companies, those those corporations were beneficiaries of just an extended period of ridiculous monetary policy and a whole generation of bankers grew up in that in the environment where they believed that that money was just going to be free forever so when the fed turned turned around and started trying to combat inflation then we started having a serious problem and the first people that got taken out were the regional banks who weren't paying attention to risk policy at all and so that's why I say it started in, in 2018 because there was a big boom in uh, cryptocurrencies. Stable coins were coming out. 
uh, Bitcoin had already like fluctuated up to 60,000 and then dropped. And like, it was already an object of speculation and Ethereum was sort of like its step cousin, you know, it was doing its thing, but there was a lot of money getting pushed into the market because of low interest rates that tech firms and Wall Street banks alike, and new new banks uh, like the FTX um, exchange that that was built, that was only founded in 2017. Like it became one of the largest traders of actual money uh, dollars to cryptocurrency in like under two years. Like, there was a lot of money flowing into the system. And um, that's when, if you follow Austrian economics, like I do, but a lot of other people do too, I'm not laying any kind of claim to it, but all the mistakes that are made, get they happen in the boom when there's money, it's cheap credit, and people are spending money on things that they don't understand. Uh, and yeah. that's exactly what tech entrepreneurs especially were doing because they were excited about this new money that we could trade that wasn't traceable. And then banks grew up around it. The Silvergate was one. Silicon Valley Bank was another. First Republic was another. PacWest was involved. And so when the tech entrepreneurs started getting nervous about their uh, their investments or even their own companies, uh, they wanted to remove the money from banks. And I'm sort of targeting Silicon Valley Bank specifically because they were getting a lot of deposits and they didn't have to loan out money to make money. So they were buying treasuries. And then when the Fed started tackling inflation, which itself, inflation itself was a result of 10 years of, of low interest rates. Like we had, of course, we had the pandemic and then we had the war in Ukraine which cut off some supply chains so it created like pain points. But at the same time, there was so much money flowing around in the system that the natural outcome, just in economic terms of that much money flowing into the system is that prices go up. The amount of money chasing goods is more than what the goods have in what I would call intrinsic value. So mm. it just costs more. If you want gas, it costs more. If you want eggs, eggs were a big deal <laughs> in the U.S. I don't yeah. know if they were in uh, in Australia, but they were a big deal for like two years because they went from like, I don't know, an average of three bucks for 12 eggs to something like seven bucks. And people were like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> I need an egg a day. And now it costs yeah. three times as much. So that's, that's the way that people feel inflation, but the cause of inflation, inflation is rising prices, but the cause of it is uh, money supply, money going into the system. And they did that in reaction to the 2008 uh, housing crisis. They were pouring money into the system and making it cheap for years to a, a degree where uh, people just started thinking that was the new norm. But when yeah. Powell got in place and he started uh, raising rates, there's a lot of bankers, especially, who were like, well, he's not going to be that aggressive about it because this is the new norm. And it wasn't the new norm because you know, there's, they still don't have inflation controlled. So my guess is they're going to raise another quarter point when they meet again 
Um, and then that's going to ripple out to banks in Australia and Japan and the, mostly those are the three that I look at, Australia, Japan, and uh, EU. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's quite uh, quite possible. I, I saw that the US, uh, you had a good, was it a, a good jobs figure? Was was that what I saw? Yeah. Uh, and so that they're saying the, the economy is more robust than they expected. And so, yeah, the yeah, it's still in. Isn't it a conundrum a little bit that um, mm. the Fed's job is just to make sure that less people have jobs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the yeah, that's the Elizabeth Warren take. I mean, she was trying to uh, pin you know, really get stuck in a Jay Powell over that. I think in the in Congress, wasn't she? Or I'm trying to remember. Was it Powell or was it? Oh, she uh, was giving. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. She was giving a speech in front of Congress, but she was taking Jay Powell to task, so she mm. wasn't actually even talking to him. Right, but that's yeah. just a weird thing that that the Fed's job has suddenly become to slow the economy down, make sure that more people are unemployed, so that the government can then take care of them. It's like it's it's not a free economy. Like we like to think that <laughs> America runs a free economy. We don't run a free economy at all. And their goal right now is to slow everything down. And then we, we, we got the jobs report that you're talking about. It was, uh, mm. I believe it was yesterday or the day before. It was more robust than they, what they're expecting. So they're saying, oh, yeah, the economy is still growing. We got to raise rates more to slow it down. Like if we got a jobs report that wasn't as positive as it was, then the stock market would have actually rallied. But when the right, report yeah. came out, yeah. it down because people are like, oh, that means they're going to raise rates again. We can't borrow money cheaply again. It's like, it's like yeah. pretzel logic to me. But it's kind of fun in a way to follow it because it's like, it doesn't really make that much sense. Yeah, yeah. I better get uh, back on to banking because I want to ask you about where we're going there in this banking crisis. Uh, there are a couple of things I just wanted to, just quick things are, are be good to get your views on. So you mentioned that this uh, SBB didn't have a risk officer. Is that right? Which I find extraordinary. Is that a failure of regulation? Yeah, I only found it in passing. So there were two kind of uh, oversight errors that took place. They didn't have a risk officer evaluating what the impact of rapidly rising interest rates would be on their the holdings that were like the core of the bank. That was one thing. And I think it was just in transition or something. There there wasn't somebody in that position at the bank for like a year. And that was the year that the Fed started aggressively raising interest rates. And at the same time, um, no nobody in the bank thought that the Fed, actually pretty much nobody in the economy, <laughs> the big Wall Street banks didn't think that they would do it either, raised interest rates as aggressively as they did. So even while it was happening, people were like, oh, they're going to stop. And so and there was a lot of speculation about mm-hmm. when they were going to pause or when they were going to pivot. I remember back in, even before the banking crisis started, the, the big phrase in the headlines was, when is the Fed going to pivot? Meaning they're going to stop raising and they're going to turn around and start dropping. Among regional banks, anyway, the first ones to, to kind of get under stress, they didn't have 
people that were taking the Fed seriously at their word. The Fed was saying we're gonna we're gonna fight inflation until it's done, which is a tough battle, and nobody believed them. So when the cost of treasuries went down and the interest rates went up, it was harder for a bank like I just used Silicon Valley Bank because it was so pronounced. It was harder for them to mm. raise the capital to pay back their to, depositors when they wanted their money back. And a lot of those depositors had just lost money in uh, the collapse of FTX. So it was sort of a direct boom and bust, you know, a line of, yeah. of crumbs from what was going on in the crypto market to what happened to the regional banks. And then you saw the entire banking sector get whacked in the market. Like there were other banks that were reasonably sound that were getting taken down because everyone was trying to get out of the banking sector. So when their stocks get are getting punished by institutional investors and by pension funds, then that messes with their balance sheets as well. And the only reason we haven't been hearing about it in since I actually tried to pinpoint it, it was May 18th that the debt ceiling debate sort of took over the headlines. All of the issues with the banks still exist. Mm. And that w- was really just a speculation on my part. But if they didn't, for some stupid reason, come to a political agreement on the debt ceiling, we would have seen a massive wipeout of banks because treasuries are supposed to be risk-free-ish. I mean, they're about as risk-free of an investment you can make other than maybe gold or precious metals. And banks had piled into uh, treasuries for so long because it was cheap and it was easy and it was risk-free. If we had a debt ceiling debate, I mean, uh, debt default, if the debate failed and we had a default, then treasuries would have been become an object of speculation like other assets in the market. People would be like, I'm betting they're going to do this. I'm going to bet that they're going to do that. And the risk-free part of that, uh, where you store your money, would have disappeared. That would have been a nightmare for a lot of smaller banks. And then the yeah. other thing that is kind of a nightmare too would be that JP Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, the big Wall Street firms would have just gobbled up all of the those uh, assets at pennies on the dollar, which is exactly mm. what they did with SVB and with um, First Republic. They just went in and they just took all the assets for like, I think it was three cents on the dollar. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. So can I ask, Addison, where are we going now? I mean, over the next six months or a year. So will we see more banks fail? Will we see a contagion or will we see 
impacts on the broader economy. Where do you think this is all going? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. There is a, a certain level of confidence in the FTIC to like bank uh, to back individual depositors. So, like the fear of bank runs is probably abated a bit because the FDIC and Janet Yellen too at the uh, Secretary of Treasury, she's been going out saying, "Oh, we're not going to bail everyone out, but if it gets bad, we'll bail some people out." Like she's being that lender of last resort. Mm-hmm. So I think that the crisis part has abated, but that hasn't fixed any of the um, the challenges that banks are facing right now with rising interest rates and the battle against inflation and the uncertainty of, of how committed uh, the Powell Fed is going to be to that. So it would. I'll, so that's why I say I'm going to answer it in two ways. One, I detailed all of this in a special report that we we're talking about anatomy of the yeah. uh, anatomy of a boss. This is exactly how it happens. And I actually got that phrase from Jared Garrett, who was writing about how all the banks failed from uh, 1932 until about, they were still failing into the fifties. So they failed for a long time, but the three banks that failed in March into the early part of May were larger in capital by percentage than all 25 banks that failed in 1932. So like that doesn't happen by mistake. And that also doesn't happen without repercussions. And I expect that that we're going to be talking about the banking crisis like three years from now, because it hasn't worked itself out yet. And they're still trying to fight inflation. So so I don't know if we'll have a, a panic or a crisis period like we had between uh, the beginning of March and mid and mid May, uh, but I think the tension is still there, and it's definitely something that we want to pay attention to because the banking system is the the bedrock for all of the other stuff that we do, like when we buy and sell stocks, when we get mortgages, when we you know, buy cars, send our kids to school and stuff like that, that system needs to be, uh, we need to have confidence in that system. And I don't think it's there yet. Right. We get a paper version of the confidence from speeches from Janet Yellen and uh, forgot her name already, but the the woman who runs uh, the FDIC. But I mean, it's just a fact. The FDIC has like 300, no, they have 30, seven billion dollars to support 17 trillion dollars worth of deposits like it's 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 absurd other than i mean and i've written this too this is it's a confidence game like just like the way people you know take advantage of uh retirees because they gain their confidence the confidence gain is what it is it's a it's a sham yeah yeah. Right now, the government is running a confidence. It's literally people have confidence that the government will figure this out, and so they're they're just biding their time. And what are they going to do next? My my guess is they're going to drop interest rates as soon as there's like a real crisis. They'll drop interest rates, and they'll get uh, another speculative boom going on Wall Street. And usually, what happens when when that happens is that mutates into bubbles in other markets too. Like Australia always benefits from, uh, from booms in the commodities market. 
Um, and China always benefits from new tech development, and the Europeans um, benefit from new speculation in travel and tourism. Like it's it's almost predictable what's going to happen next. Right. Okay. So this is your report, Anatomy of a Bust. I can put a link in the show notes to that, can't I, Addison? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And just trying to think about yeah what the risks are. I mean. You make the case that yeah, more banks are probably going to fail. What do you think the chances of something like 2008 happening again or something worse than that? What would you put the probability of that at in the next uh, couple of years? Right now, I'd say it's pretty low because right. um, one of the things that happens is, like human beings, the, the people who run the government also learn. And they did what they thought they had to do in 2008. I, I've written about this many times that uh, mm. Paulson delivered a three-page memorandum to Congress and said it at like midnight and said, you have to bail out these banks, otherwise the entire global economy is going to fall apart. It was three pages and they just followed it. So I think they've learned that um, through monetary policy and also working in concert with other federal like the Federal Reserve System of the world, that they can mitigate crises. But that doesn't mean the problems aren't still there. So that's why it's important to understand how booms and busts even take place. You can't keep interest rates at zero for 10 years and then expect that no inflation is going to pop up. Like it, mm. It's ridiculous. But um, it's worth understanding the mechanisms behind the banks and whatnot, because that's the that's where money flows. It, that's how the markets work. That's how you know they d- determine interest rates for all kinds of things: credit cards and, and uh, student loans and banks and cars and all that kind of stuff. The economy functions on credit, and mm. banks are the source of that credit. And they're all connected to the Federal Reserve System. So it's worth paying attention to what they say. And, and I hate that. I, I don't like politics and I don't like the banking system. But I warn people that they ignore those things at their peril. Because when you need to do something financially in your lives, you're sort of dependent on decisions made by people who live far away from you and don't have your interests in mind. Yeah, yeah. I just want to try to understand what this all means. So does this mean that like, we're in this situation where the Federal Reserve and the, the government is going to have to continuously, well, maybe not continuously, but every now and then bail out the banks and, you know, we've got to keep try and keep interest rates low, keep the flow of credit going? And therefore, ultimately, this is inflationary. Are we back in, because we had a period of very low inflation, are we going to be in a period of higher inflation for for longer than we expect? Is that one of the arguments? I would say, is that a conclusion? Yeah, my conclusion is that we would, and it's not a conclusion because it's an ongoing story, but we're going to be in a period of inflation longer than you know the headline news tells us. Like, you can't just stop inflation. Once it starts, mm. it's very hard to stop. And I actually got that quote. I, uh, I interviewed, I did a documentary about 15 years ago and I interviewed Paul Volcker, who was famously the inflation fighter of the early 1980s. He was the Fed chair at the time 
And what he said to he said two things that have stuck with me. He said a lot of other things, and I published all of what he said. But but he said a couple other things that are two things that have really stuck with me. One, he's like, actually, I'm going to set the stage too. This is after walking past a couple of uh, of cartoon pictures of him that he had framed in his office of him like turning off the inflation spigot. Mm-hmm. And then another one where he was like wielding a sword and a, and a shield and he was like fighting inflation. So he, he was kind of like a caricature of that time. And that was the worst inflation that the world had seen in since the late 1800s, since the panic of uh, 1893. And the reason was we had gotten off the Bretton Woods dollar peg to gold. Da, 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 da. There was like a lot of reasons why it happened. But when I spoke to him, and this is on camera and in the interviews that I've published, he said, well, first of all, once inflation gets started, it's very hard to stop because it it creates um, like a psychosis in people where they start thinking, if I don't spend my money for that refrigerator in June by September, it's going to be 30 bucks more or something like that. And they start thinking like they have to spend their money now. And that mm. creates uh, inflation psychosis of sorts where people are, are just spending more money more quickly because they think it's going to be worth less later. And you like if the Fed's goal is to slow down the economy, that inflation psychosis works against any Fed policy that they can put together. Okay, just a couple of things because, yeah, it's great conversation. Quickly, what about crypto? You, you mentioned crypto was part of the story. Well, I, th- I have a theory about crypto, and it's the same thing. That it, it's the same philosophy I have about the internet itself, is that mm-hmm. we had in 2001, we had a big boom in internet stocks. Like even, uh, I'm drawing a blank right now, but the company that makes insulation for houses was doing fiber optic, and they dropped a dot .com on the end of their name. They weren't even a tech company, and they they yeah. exploded in value. Yeah. Wait, what's the pink insulation that we all use? Well, I, I don't even know why I'm drawing a blank on the name, but it's because it's a big insulation company. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that during the dot com boom, there were just ridiculous investment being made, yeah. all kinds of things, and then they busted. But we were in the end after all the detritus fell to the floor, and people sort of like woke up from their hangovers. We ended up with internet and things like Zoom. Like I'm talking to you from Australia right now. I'm in Baltimore, and these things are possible because of that massive uh, innovation and the investment that went into that period. Like that, it, it, even um, with Agora, the company I've been working with for a number of years, we exploded when we went online, and we benefited mm-hmm. greatly from the the innovation of email. It changed our lives. So I have the same sort of perspective on crypto is that I think it's speculative and I think there's booms and busts. And we saw that 2018 was crazy. Yeah. And then we saw another spike in, in different like Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the stable coins in like 2021. Last year was a nightmare. We called it crypto winter because um, the underpinning, actually, this is part of the story I'm telling too, is that two of the stable coins that, uh, FTX and Alameda Research were investing in the traders. They were supposed to be pegged to the U.S. dollar, 
but the traders unpegged them without telling anyone. And that started yeah. with FTX. So I think you're going to continue to see that kind of speculative nature in crypto. And we've got this specter of uh, uh, central bank digital currencies coming up. Like, we don't know where that's going to go. Supposedly, there's going to be a vote in the U.S. in July on whether the Federal Reserve should adopt one or not. But they keep saying that, too. Like That story is going to be ongoing. I think the real benefit of the the innovation and the spikes and the highs and lows and and you know the turbulent market that cryptos has gone through up to this point will ultimately be beneficial because we'll we'll end up with um, blockchain as a more efficient way to to conduct transactions in the financial markets. So you can make money, you can lose money in crypto. I'm not a crypto evangelist. Like I believe that it's going to be a substitute to the U.S. dollar or the the world banking system. But I do believe mm. the efficiencies that are brought to transactions are going to be beneficial to everyone. And that's kind of how I look at it. Even from an investment standpoint, I'm like, oh, Bitcoin's at 15,000. Maybe I should buy some. And then it's at 27. And then it's at nine. I'm just like, no, I'm not kidding. Somebody tried to buy some property from me. <laughs> couple of years ago. I think it was in 2021. And but they would only do the exchange in uh in Bitcoin. And I'm like, I don't know if my property is going to be worth less or more if I take your Bitcoin, but I do know what the value of the property is. Yeah. So I think the speculative nature of it is it's too early to to like I, I prefer gold and silver. Mm to Bitcoin or Ethereum at the moment. Maybe there's a time when when it makes sense to like use it as a banking tool, but not right now. Too speculative for me. And uh, yeah. but I do think that the benefits of blockchain are going to be like email to us. You know, a couple of years from now where everyone's going to be using blockchain for efficiency, which I think is great. In the boom-bust cycle, that's what happens. People invest a lot of money quickly into innovative projects, and a lot of people get burnt, a lot of people get rich. And then what we end up with is the the core technology that benefits humanity as a whole. I, mean, I, I love technology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to cover too is this demise of the dollar you talk about. So is that a... Is this this is a long run concern of yours about where the US dollar is going? And I mean, this is yeah. related to the points I, you're making about. Yeah, the thing is, like I, I mean, I could flip through the book. There's a, one great chart that shows what has happened to the dollar. I'm not going to be able to find it and make it make sense to your viewers, but um, since the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913, the original goal of the central bank was to stabilize the currency and maintain its purchasing power in the economy for payment currency users like me. Mm. (laughs) Like it's supposed to be able to, I'm supposed to be able to figure out what my dollar can buy and for how long. But it's lost more than 97% of its purchasing power since 1913. And it's it's a steady slope downward. The more money they pour into the system, the like every dollar that you print becomes worth less than the one that was printed last. And uh, the entire banking system of the world is dependent on the dollar as a reserve currency 
And at the same time, we're losing the value of its purchasing power every day. And it's been going on for more than a century. Their, their main task was to preserve the purchasing power of the currency that we use in the payment system in the economy. And they have done anything but that. And it's, it could be, it's historic. The yeah. currencies never work. It accelerated after 1971 when the Bretton Woods system fell apart. The only thing you can do is understand it and then try to move your money around into assets that accumulate value over time. That's why I like gold and silver because yeah. there's a little bit more speculative. But gold, when I was younger and uh, first trying to understand how these things correlate, gold was trading at like 253 bucks an ounce in 1999, I think. And now it's trading on average a little bit above 2000 Over that time, the S and P 500, it's outpaced the S and P 500, which is the broadest measure of big stocks. It's just been a better investment over time. And that's, that's just generally what I think is it's a reverse correlation to the dollar, which is supposed to be managed <laughs> by the bankers who keep sort of forgetting about risk and inflation and those kinds of things. <laughs> right. On. Okay. I might have to come back to fiat currency it's, yeah it's a big big topic but another time because uh, I've, I've really uh, picked your brain and it's been yeah, great Addison I don't mind well very good uh, that's great uh, and yeah maybe if you if you wanted to sum up your I mean broadly the anatomy of a bust uh, would you like to summarize it or do, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up no, I mean, I would just say that it, it was my attempt when when I was already following the story of FTX, and I knew mm. there was going to be a knock-on effect. And I had, starting in about December of 2022, so like six months ago, I was like, this story is not going to go away. And there's going to be a knock-on effect in other parts of the market that we're not aware of right now that was in December, and then by March we we started having banks fail, which nobody thought was even possible anymore, with the Federal Reserve system and um, the FDIC backing out small depositors. Like nobody thought we would have bank runs ever again, and and then we had the three largest ones within a six week period. So I had already mm-hmm. been kind of following the story and trying to just trying to understand how it would even be possible. So that's what's in the report is like, here's what happened. Here's why it happened. Um, here's what you need to pay attention to. And here's how it fits into the historical perspective of booms and busts. The credit cycle is a real thing, even if the government is trying to mitigate it. It, mm. it does exist and it impacts everyone because you need a bank to save your money, to borrow, to do things that you want to do, to run your business. You need you need a bank that works with you. And if they're making dumb choices with the assets that they have, um, it's better to know that in advance. So that's what the report is about. And then there's a couple of recommendations on uh, investment investments you can make once you understand what's going on. We actually recommend gotcha. bank. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So this is for U.S. banks. Um, might have to have a, I'll have to have a, I'll have to have a, a conversation. I don't know if you look at Australian banks. If that's, I don't. Like I haven't well. looked at Australian banks except for in the macro sense, where I'm aware that the Federal Reserve decisions to move rates 
also has a knock-on effect in Australia, mm. New Zealand, um, China, and Japan and Europe. Those are like the big ones. Russia yeah. was part of that too until they uh, decided to destroy their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the general view here is that our our banks are in a much better position than uh, the Yeah, it, that banks. could be. I yeah. haven't studied them closely yeah. enough to know. I think the yeah, reserve but- requirements are different in Australia than in the U.S. too. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there there are definitely differences. So um, yeah, I might have to. I'll have a close look at that myself. But uh, oh, look, Addison, it's been terrific. I've spent yeah, yeah uh, probably more time than you you may have uh, expected uh, delving into it because I think what's great is you you do deep research and you make uh, I don't know, big calls, I suppose, or you make uh, yeah, you make you really let us know what you think, and I think it's great. And uh, yeah, it's it makes me think about what's going on so uh, much more. So really appreciate all the work you do, and I'll put links in the show notes to uh, to your work. and And Great. thanks for making that uh, that report available for listeners. That's terrific. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, I, it's information that I like. I would just caution people that I'm learning about it as fast as I can, but I'm also passionate about it. That's why I do it. This whole project that I have, the Wigan sessions is a passion project. I like talking about this stuff. <laughs> and then it, it makes me think, just like you're saying, it makes you think. And I want to give away the report just to to spread what I've learned because I think it's important stuff for, especially if you're trying to manage your own money, it's really important for you to understand the bigger trends. And I, you know, I have a philosophy degree and I studied literature at school and stuff. So I'm interested in the stories of what's going on. It might sound perverse, but I was actually excited when we started having our own banking crisis. <laughs> because I'm like, holy shit, it's happening right in front of my face. I just have to read the news. So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Get <laughs> the report. It's, it's interesting and uh, it's helpful to like, make sense of what's happening in the news too yeah yeah certainly i guess it, it could be exciting stressful i remember being in treasury and here in australia during our well the financial crisis we didn't have it as bad as it was in the states but it was still quite uh quite stressful uh at a time when we started seeing the the drop in government revenues and yeah need right. to borrow, borrow lots more money and yeah there, well my was, biggest concern i put this in the report too but my biggest concern right now is we were talking about the savings rate during the pandemic. I think the same thing happened in Australia too. The savings mm. rate was high because there was a lot of government stimulus, like direct payments to citizens. So the savings rate, and then nobody could go anywhere. So the savings rate went really high. It actually peaked above consumer credit for like a, you know, like maybe a month. And then as the economy started uh, opening up and people started traveling and like, making decisions like, oh, we're free, we can go do what we want. The savings rate plummeted. And then the consumer credit rate for all of the things... I'm only talking about the US, but I'm sure it's mimicked in other Western economies. The consumer credit rate skyrocketed before the Fed started raising rates. So like all these people are taking on uh, adjustable rate credit cards and loans and, and uh, mortgages and things. And then suddenly the, the debt service that they have to pay on, on those rates went through the roof. It's tripled. So you had a plummeting savings rate mm. at the same time that you have a, um, a service to debt ratio going through the roof. 
it's not a good scenario. And we haven't even really seen that impact on like earnings in the S&P 500, the big retailers and stuff like that. We haven't seen what that impact is going to look like yet. So that's not right. kind of my biggest yeah. concern, other than the banks themselves, because they mm. didn't calculate for it. There's two kind of points there that I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Well, definitely, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it too. I think they're really good points. Okay, Addison Wigan, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed that. That was terrific. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's good to talk to you, man. Very good. Thanks, Addison. Righto, thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.